self-driving cars and autonomous vehicles. It's all the rage right now, and cars that can eventually drive themselves are nearly here. But that begs the question, what about the safety of you and me in a world where these vehicles need to protect passengers and pedestrians? Are we truly safe? How can we develop better systems to ensure safety between us and the car as we begin to see these vehicles on city streets? Imagine if we could design a user interface between cars and pedestrians so that both can communicate their intentions. My guest in this episode is Dave Day, and he's currently working on solving this problem. He's a UX researcher at the Eindhoven University of Technology in the Netherlands. In our chat, we cover everything from his journey down this fascinating field to talking about developing the user experience and interface, as well as discussing the future of self-driving and what it means for humans and transport. I learn a lot speaking with him, and I hope you do too. And remember, if you like these episodes, don't forget to subscribe, like, rate, and comment. So with that, I hope you enjoy my chat with Dave Day. Hey Dave, uh, thanks for uh, being on the show. I uh, really appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. You know, first of all, thank you uh, so much for uh, you know, basically coming on. And I really want to understand a little bit about uh, what you're up to uh, with regards to self-driving cars, all the work you're doing in auto autonomous vehicles, EHMIs, which is a very interesting topic uh, that we should want to get into. But uh, why don't you give a quick bio about yourself before we get started? So um, I, I have a background in computer science, actually, and um, I, I studied um, like theoretical computer science, and then I went on the, the usual path to become a software engineer. And then, um, uh, well, long story short, uh, I had a, um, it, it was a personal experience that led me down the path of my interest towards uh, automated driving and self-driving cars. So I had a uh, I was living in the U.S. I was living in Austin, Texas, back uh, back in 2012, I think it was, when I had a car crash, and uh, yeah. So the ensuing investigation revealed that um, it was uh, the result of the other uh, driver looking at his GPS system and uh, failing to uh, observe a red light, and he had hit me, and I, I the the ensuing disaster although i was perfectly safe and everything nothing happened to me physically i was okay it just like led me to this whole uh almost like not quite but something like a post-traumatic stress disorder where i was was not able to drive for set almost a year things like these uh but it, it led, led led me down this path of actually wondering uh what happened there and how i could perhaps um affect some change into that in the direction. And since it was, it, it, it started from this whole perspective of human computer interaction, human machine interaction in the perspective of a car, I wanted to see if there was something, I had a computer science background and I thought, okay, there is some sort of an element there. Maybe there's something I can do. And that lent, uh, yeah, took me in the direction of the human factors of, uh, of uh, also, uh, automobiles in general even factors of driving and then now what what uh, it, it, the the whole um, domain is now moving towards automated driving self-driving cars and that's where i that's how i ended up here so i uh, <clears throat> back then when when the crash happened i was a software engineer working 
in Austin. And then I decided that in order to be able to effectively contribute and really see uh, where this is going, I needed to really take a deep dive. So I decided to um, get back into academia. And so I just I went to, uh, came to the Netherlands to pursue a PhD in this topic. And I have recently finished my PhD and I'm continuing my research as a postdoc here. Um, and yeah, that's that's the short history of how I ended up where I am. Did you, uh, you know, with that experience, I'm sure it definitely let, uh, left an imprint on you mentally. And, you know, it's not every day where people are affected by these events and they decide to do something about it, right? And I felt like you were motivated to really do something proactive about helping not yourself, but potentially other people as well, right? And I was wondering, like, you know, with the studies that you did in the Netherlands, because you've been there for several years now, I know that obviously self-driving cars and autonomous vehicles are very big here in the U.S. as well. Was there any availability of that type of um, study that you wanted to pursue in the US or was it only available in the Netherlands or in, in Europe especially? Well, uh, that's a good question. Uh, my decision to come to the Netherlands was not particularly because I couldn't have done the done a similar kind of research in the US, but rather because I, <laughs> my, uh, I wanted to have a quick turnaround of the, the, this realignment of career goals. So at that point, having... Uh, having already been a software engineer, having already worked in industry for a while, I didn't want to, uh, quote unquote, become a student for a very long time again. So I, I wondered what was the quickest way where I can just have a quick, um, wet my feet and get back into industry again. And uh, at that point, PhD was not in my radar yet. I, I thought uh, I wanted to do a quick kind of a, uh, of, a, of a program which I had found out in the Netherlands they have something called a PDN a, a professional doctorate in engineering which is a two-year program and not one of the usual uh, five-year programs or four or five-year programs as a PhD so uh, I thought okay yeah I will be able to do that and get back to the industry and that's why I went to the uh, came to the Netherlands and then uh, well <clears throat> destiny has other other plans <laughs> so I uh, what while I finished my PDN, uh, I realized that I wanted to, this, this PhD position opened up and I, uh, this was exactly in the area that I was already kind of doing in my PDN. And then I decided it made most sense to continue because I was really invested in the research and, and it allowed me to take a deeper dive than I ever could have. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's really amazing. And I, I'm glad to hear that everything worked out when you went there and definitely you know i know that europe has um a strong you know interest in um autonomy uh you know autonomous vehicles and self-driving cars and you know i don't know what the differences are between where they are and where the u.s is now but do you want to just shed some light on you know i know in the u.s at least here in the bay area in california there's a lot of uh regulations and i think there's a lot of now interest in having these vehicles out in the roads doing testing and um, you know a lot of the approvals have come from the Californian government right but do you what's the perception over there 
in Europe, what are the regulations like about uh, and allowing these sort of vehicles on the road? Well, uh, it is similar here in Europe compared to the US, also in California or Pennsylvania, or even Arizona, I think, uh, where uh, there are some really heavy regulations in place where uh, cars, automated cars are not allowed without at least a safety driver uh, behind the wheel. But then there, there, that's also why we have several facilities for closed track testing. Uh, and this is also, uh, th this, this has been one of the sticking points in our research as well, because of course we want to uh, test our technology and all the things we, all, all the potential interactions that we want to test in, in as realistic situations as possible. But then safety comes first and we, before we want to take that into real life, we want to make sure that, um, uh, it, it is kind of uh, fail-safe enough to, to get to that point. And, and because of regulations, we often cannot <clears throat> quite uh, have automated cars flying on the road, which is also why we uh, take, um, <laughs> we resort to other methods of why, why, how can we have uh, an illusion of automated car without actually using automated cars? And um, this is also something that perhaps you, um, yeah, it, it became a big point of news in 2017 and 2018 as well. Ford and Virginia Tech, they were doing some experiments where they had a, a, a van with a person sitting inside a seat suit in the driver's seat. So it looked like there was nobody in the car, but there was actually somebody driving. It was a faking an automated car. Uh, so we also have... Um, yeah, conducted similar experiments and uh, tested interactions with automated cars, which are not actually automated cars, and it somehow sells the illusion. Right, right. And I get the feeling that, um, you know, there's such a huge disparity between what people think self-driving cars are and yeah. what they are now. Mm -hmm. There's such a mountain to climb when it comes to um, pro progress. And I think we've made a lot of good progress. I think companies like Google, um, you know, with Waymo and uh, Uber and Apple and all, that, all those big uh, companies are trying to at least, um, you know, incentivize the industry with their research and obviously including Tesla with their autonomy and all that stuff. But, but I, I want to understand a little bit about, and this is obviously for the readers, uh, the listeners too, because we all understand that yes, self-driving cars is you know we're, we're, it's happening and it's in progress, mm -hmm. but we just don't necessarily understand how difficult it is, right? So, mm -hmm. what are the major challenges, especially when it comes to your research, that um, self-driving cars and sort of autonomous vehicles are facing right now, and how do we overcome how do we overcome those challenges? That's a very good question, Barry. I think uh, quite apart from the technological challenges like sensing and vision and navigation and maps and all that, when I am uh, particularly looking at the human side of that uh, equation, how, how we as uh, either passengers or drivers or even as pedestrians and cyclists and, or other, other road users interact with cars uh, or self-driving cars in particular, the, the question becomes, how do we know what the car is doing? Because uh, normally we would want to look inside, um, like in in our daily life when we are a pedestrian. Let's let's stick to that example. 
if you're trying to cross the road, the most obvious thing to do without even thinking about it, we try to look inside the car, perhaps to see what the driver is doing, whether he or she is aware of their situation, of their surroundings. And uh, given that that is not going to be the case for automated cars, either there might be nobody inside, or maybe there is somebody inside doing something else, sleeping, taking a call, whatever it may be. So uh, as a pedestrian, I can no longer... Um, look inside to the human occupant to determine the intention of the car. So then the question becomes how uh, how do I know what the car is doing? Whether it's gonna whether it's aware of what's going on around it, whether it's gonna uh, abide by the traffic law, whether it is going to yield to me, whether it's gonna be safe for me. All these kinds of questions. The critical question is, can I? Am I safe around it? Uh, and then uh, most of this the research around it it revolves around finding different ways to have the self-driving car communicate to its environment. A very, uh, the question at, at its root is whether this communication is even necessary, because uh, we, we sometimes think that uh, perhaps uh, we make too much of a big deal of, of a very natural and neutral situation. Maybe we really don't need this explicit communication all the time. Uh, and that's also some, sometimes we have found that most, in most normal situations, we don't really explicitly seek confirmation from drivers. We are very good as humans as uh, to, to just simply look at kinematical cues and dynamics, the movement-based dynamics of the car and simply understand, oh, the car is slowing down. And if that seems to be in alignment with our expectations, most of the times we don't need to look inside or get additional confirmation. But if there is this con uh, conflict or contradiction then there definitely comes this need for further uh, confirmation. And then comes this need for communication, which is what most of my research has been on. And now coming back to your question on what is the industry struggling with or what is this research community most struggling with at this point is how, how number one, how to achieve this communication so that it's, it's, not, it's intuitive, it's not overwhelming, it doesn't take a, a steep learning curve. It, um, it doesn't create a whole new language that we just, we, we, uh, like if, if there are whole, all kinds of cars flashing and making sounds around us, then it's going to be chaos in an already chaotic and noisy environment. So uh, a mo mo the biggest part of the research community is still trying, we are still trying to figure out what's the best way to achieve this goal. And then the follow-up uh, challenge is how to standardize this because it's not just one, um, so it's, it's all different kinds of uh, research communities, both in, the, both in academia and industry are doing this research in parallel. And, and while we are collaborating, we are at different phases and we are exploring different sides of the same coin all at the same time. It's, it's really critical to kind of all come, come, everybody coming to the same page and making sure that, okay, we, we do make sure that, um, Ford doesn't start communicating in one way while uh, BMW is doing something else. And uh, just examples, of course, but uh, yeah, so this standardization is a very big issue that uh, we, uh, members of my lab, uh, my, my supervisor, my boss as well, she is a part of the International Standards Organization, the ISO steering committee that's uh, a part of like making these kind of standardization decisions. And there are lots of other parties involved and so these, uh, yeah, this is, in my opinion, this is one of the biggest challenges right now. 
And I think yeah. maybe if I can even add to that, sorry, you were going to say something. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, I, I think thinking about it, what, another big challenge is educating uh the um, educating the public educating everyone like what the car is capable of because oftentimes we tend to get into situations such as over trust or under trust we, we see those situations with tesla all the time where people uh but well there's this no novelty factor of course that people are really curious and fascinated by this car which is able to quote unquote drive itself for some stretches while it is not fully automated but then we we get into those situations where people just simply uh, like we have YouTube videos of people sleeping behind Tesla wheels and we have several incidents of people uh, like crashes that happen because of negligence. Uh, so that's a classic example of people overestimating what the system is capable of. But the other side of the coin is also equally um, critical and maybe even uh, a bit frustrating because like maybe there, there are situations where the system is perfectly capable of handling everything. But uh, since uh, n not everybody might be able to know the edge cases or the boundaries of the system or what it's capable of. They don't trust it and they're constantly on the edge. And that kind of takes away the point of automation anyway. So striking this balance, what we call trust calibration, is is really challenging. And and this is an open question and we are still trying to figure out. So how do we know what, what how do we know what the current level of trust is with a person? And how do we make sure that we communicate at any given point, what the car is capable of and um, whether they need to do anything. So this is the limit of what the, what you can expect from the car. And that's where you need to step in. And this will become more and more, this is particularly critical now where we don't have uh, full automation, where uh, we have automation in only stretches like we see uh, on the Tesla cars, um, uh, only in stretches of highways and you have to still uh, take care of the environment and if anything happens you are still responsible so in those situations knowing what the car is capable of and what i am responsible for as the driver is really critical yeah that's a that's a really good point and you know for me that's i didn't know that i i you know for me to really as you frame it in that way it, it necessarily it doesn't make sense you know because there are so many aspects to self-driving that people don't know about and people are not you know people who are buying these vehicles are not you know they they might be tech people they might be tech heads and might not might not be but you can't assume that and you know you need to make the assumption that people are going to use these uh these vehicles to obviously take them from point a to point b yeah. however you just don't you cannot underestimate um what they're trying to do with these vehicles they could obviously as you said you know you see these youtube videos of people showing off and and all of these things and for me it sounds like there needs to be more education about the power and the capability of self-driving cars and you also mentioned about the fact that right now especially with tesla there are definitely constraints about where you can take the vehicle in a very autonomous mode for example highways right where it sort of is trained for those environments however when it comes to city streets or it comes to narrow lanes that's where the real um, challenges are because there you're not just faced with the urban environment but you're faced with people and you're faced with uh, a lot of 
variables that can change at any given time. And this sort of brings me into my the sort of the talking point about EHMIs, right? And the stuff yeah. that you're working with. Do you want to just provide a quick overview of number one, what is e, what is an EHMI? And what are examples of how what an EHMI can you can do for, you know, to sort of help the self-driving community? Absolutely. So EHMI, the word stands for external human machine interfaces, um, EHMI. And this is, uh, this, this is a sort of a, of a communication device, for the lack of a better term, which we have placed on the outside of a car, uh, of a self-driving car that, that we use to facilitate the car to communicate with its environment. So uh, to other road users, essentially. So uh, you and me as pedestrians, cyclists, other drivers, the, the, the kind of people that we already kind of talked about a moment ago, uh, how do we know what the car is up to? How do we know whether it is safe for me? All these kinds of questions. EHMI is a way for the car to provide this kind of information and communicate with the external world. And uh, to answer your question of how uh, EHMIs can facilitate this or what are different ways um, the HMI can be effective. So, um, yeah, this is this is very much an open question. We don't have the golden egg yet. Uh, and this is also why uh, this, is, this has been a part of my research for the last four years. And this is still very much, we are not close to one answer. But the thing is that there are different kinds of ways that a car can try to communicate. And there are several concepts or visions out there and different car com companies, including Daimler or Mercedes-Benz, Nissan, Volvo, uh, all of them have come up with different ways in which this perhaps could be accomplished. Even Google and Toyota, they have patents regarding this. And we are looking at it from a more academic uh, perspective because most of the times we see uh, visions of uh, what this interface could look like, they, they look very appealing on paper. So I, I maybe you might be aware of the Daimler F015 concept. Uh, if, if you, uh, I'll just quickly explain it any, anyway. So it's a, back in 2015, Daimler came up with this uh, like fantastic, futuristic, fascinating concept of a self-driving car. And one aspect of it was this EHMI as well, with which it was trying to, would communicate with other road users. And what it did was it projected kind of a zebra crossing in front of uh, on the road surface in front of the car, and it could when it knew that it was approaching a person standing on the side of the road and it wanted to let them know that it was safe for them to pass, the car would slow down, but not only slow down but also project this image of a zebra crossing in front of the pedestrian and animate it in green, all kinds of vis visual cues to kind of show that okay, I am yielding to you. It is safe for you to cross. Uh, um, Nissan, I think Nissan had this, um, yeah, this other concept called the IDS concept, in which they had sort of a of a thin light band all around the the body of the car. So it was it was a light strip essentially, which which, which kind of showed with a little bit of a tiny sliver of light by following any road user. So if you were a cyclist or a pedestrian, let's say you're walking next to the car, it showed with a little tiny sliver of light by following you that, oh, I recognize you, I see you are there. So there is this kind of a situational awareness of the car. And there were uh, other forms of it is all, uh, 
we also see things like a display, like, okay, please cross or after you or things like messages that clearly say that the car is, is yielding to somebody. Uh, there was another quite uh, interesting concept that came out back in 2016, I think. It was by a Swedish company called Semcon. And they had uh, something called a smiling car in which they uh, had a, the, the grill, the air intake, the grill of the, the front grill of the car. It had a display in it where when the car was just cruising or driving it by itself, it just had a, a neutral kind of a light bar. But when the car was trying to yield to someone, that the light bar would morph into kind of a smile as a friendly gesture that the car is yielding to the pedestrian. So these are the different kinds of visions of some examples of EHMI. And I just gave you four examples, but there are plenty out there. So recently we had a we, we wrote a paper where we identified, I think, about 70 or such uh, EHMI concepts, academic and industry or patent uh, roundabout. But... Uh, but yeah, again, this this came to the this brought us to the challenge that there are so many ideas out there, and we really uh, we are not really closer to finding out which one holds merit. <laughs> so uh, that's also why there is a need for systematic testing, and that's also what uh, the um, a big part of my research is about. So with the with the research that you are doing, and you mentioned you know a whole bunch of examples from all of these companies. Right, and it definitely makes sense because you're trying to. These vehicles are designed to communicate a message to uh, the user or a pedestrian or whatever. Uh, but at the same time, I find that that it's great to have all of these signals and all of these sensors in place. But how do how feasible do you think that really is based on your research so far? Because you know, have you done experiments? where there are pedestrians and you have, you know, subjects who are um, sort of in the middle crossing the road, the car detects you there and then stops. But then there's a decision that needs to be made. Does the car stop and do something about it? Or should the person, the pedestrian, give way to the car? So it's sort of those, um, that language and that communication that is, really vital in these sort of situations. What has your research shown in, in terms of that? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. I, I think one of the biggest worries in this field has always been that when people understand that automated cars, they, they have sensors, they the sensors don't quit. If, they, uh, if, the, if the automated car is able to see me, they will act defensively. So uh, there was this worry that if people understand this, this, strategy or this kind of algorithm of the defensive behavior of automated cars, then pedestrians will behave with some sort of impunity. They will just be kings of the road. Okay, even if it's not my right of way, I'm just going to step in because it's an automated car. It's going to stop for me. Uh, But those were, (laughs) in the beginning, we, we struggled a lot with these questions because we wondered whether this argument was one of the foundation of even the question of whether we should even show that a car is automated in the first place. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe uh, in order to avoid an automated car from being bullied by pedestrians, we we just make it look as similar to, as obscure, as as normal as possible, if you will. But then as we um, ran several studies, and it's not just studies from our lab, it's several surveys all over the world, it has usually shown that people are 
gen generally a bit hesitant and a, a bit lacking in trust towards new automation technology. So if if the car is automated, the gut reaction is not, oh, I'm gonna bully it or I'm gonna step in front of it, but but rather I'm gonna I'm gonna stand back and see what it's gonna do. I, I don't trust it yet. So uh, this has been this is almost the other side of the coin. This is almost the, the uh, this is even more frustrating because then the, if there is so I, I wouldn't say more frustrating. That's a <laughs> uh, I, but this is equally uh, frustrating because. Um, that takes away from the efficacy or from the from the usefulness of deploying automation in the first place. So one of the biggest um, reason why we want automation is effect uh, or, or increasing the throughput of traffic or, or uh, making uh, traffic stops more efficient. So one of the things was that with vehicle to vehicle communication. Most of the times when a traffic light goes from red to green, it, there takes, it, it takes us a, a few seconds to be aware of that and get going. So by the time um, the five cars have gone, the right, right light's gone red again. And with automated cars, this can very well be avoided because with the system, with the vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle or vehicle-to-infrastructure communication, everyone knows what, uh, each car knows what, when the light is going to turn and they can just like a train kind of go all in once and it, it increases the throughput. But there are such kinds of benefits of automation, but if it will be such a pity if uh, hesitation and mistrust holds back adoption of this technology. So uh, when it comes to how people interact with automated cars, the question that you asked, one of the things that we, we really try to observe what people do uh, with current cars. We wanted to see with manually driven cars right now, what are people doing? How are they... Uh, what are they looking at? What what kind of information do they seek in order to cross a road when when there's an approaching car? And we, for instance, ran an eye tracking study. So we we basically put a mobile eye tracker on a pedestrian and we asked them to cross a road in uh, the presence of an approaching car. And we found that there is no one definitive answer to where people look at when crossing a road. And it, it, it there seems to be a a decisive pattern where people look. It's not just one element, but uh, when the car is, for instance, very far away, it's not a threat. People can simply cross. So people tend to look everywhere, road, environment, sky, trees. But as the car gets closer and starts becoming a little bit of a, of a threat, then there is a very, uh, very recurrent pattern that exists where the gaze pattern, the, the sight, the fixations move from uh, the road surface right in front of the car to the bumper, to the grill and headlights, to the hood, and then it kind of goes up. It, it, the scanning motion, it goes up and then rests on the windshield where people expect to see the driver. So um, we speculate from that, that this is most likely because this is the part of the car that will hit uh, or that will be the closest to the pedestrian that would cause an impact if there was to be an impact. So that's danger zone. So people really are drawn to that. And then as the car comes closer or it slows down and there, there is some sort of an ambiguity regarding whether or not the car is really stopping and there is a need to get that confirmation, that's when people start looking at the driver inside uh, to, to really not necessarily to get eye contact as a lot of people, we, we have a tendency to really think that, oh, we look inside the car to get eye contact, but that's not really the case. We also found that 
it's not necessarily eye contact as in the sense of I look at the driver and the driver looks at me, but rather more I want to get a sense of what the driver is up to, whether he or she is aware of the environment, whether if he or she is looking around, if, if he or she looks alert, those are already indicators of what what we can expect from a car. And most of the times it's very hard to see inside the car anyway because of the reflections from the windshield or the darkness of the interior. So, uh, but despite all of that, we saw that there was this very uh, strong ten tendency to, to look at the driver. So then we repeated the experiment with an automated car or like a, a fake automated car, which, which appeared to be automated. There was nobody inside. Uh, so the driver was hidden. And then we saw that once people realized that the car is automated, then the tendency to look inside the car was already kind of gone. So there was it, it wasn't a habit formation because we expected that we are so in uh, intrinsically drawn to this behavior of like looking for the driver that uh, even with an automated car, we expected pedestrians might do that. But we saw that they didn't. So uh, we when we had just an automated car with no communication at all, for instance, uh, people were simply looking at the motion patterns, the kinematics of the car, and they were very, uh, they, they already were able to gauge the intention of the car simply from that. When we augmented that automated car with an EHMI, the external human machine interface, we saw a, a really marked improvement in the performance or like the, uh, uh, we found that pedestrians really were able to make decisions about the intention of the car or about their safety or whether they wanted to cross the road a lot quicker. So we, we do have some evidence that these kinds of EHMIs, these kind of communication devices do work in alleviating some of this, this confusion and ambiguity. But then again, we also found that this is not universal. This is not absolute. So there has to be sort of a of a concurrence between what the car says it will do and what the car actually does. So we also did uh, some kind of like uh, what we call breaching studies in which we pit different behaviors against each other. So we had something like the, the EHMI is telling that uh, the car will be yielding, but the car seems to be coming at a pretty high speed. Um, it doesn't seem to be yielding, even though it says it, it is. So we wonder what will people do then? Do, do they simply trust the EHMI or do they what takes over. And yes, as expected, the, the behavior of the car, the speed of the car, it's the telltale sign. Like if the, if the, no matter what the car says it will do, if it doesn't look like it's stopping people, don't simply take the word of the HMI for granted and step in the road. And that was a more of a comforting finding, so to say. Like, um, there, yeah, we, we, even if there is a mal malfunction, let's say, like there was some sensor problems where the BHMI announced that the car would stop, uh, but it actually didn't. There, there, uh, like people simply, it's, it's obviously unideal. This is, this should never happen. But if it does, uh, in the worst case scenario, like we have some faith that, okay, it's the behavior of the car that still is what people look at. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, this is very interesting and it, it, it goes on. Okay, I can talk for hours about this, but maybe I should stop and let you ask. <laughs> no, I think that's a, that was a great explanation on what EHMIs are because, you know, definitely I can see that that will definitely help the interaction between yeah. the um, autonomous vehicle, sort of this inanimate object 
and the human, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, as you just sort of described that situation, it, you know, it really struck, strikes me that there's a lot of trust in there as well because you are expecting the vehicle to follow its rules. There's a algorithm that it needs to prescribe to and that algorithm cannot break because if it announces something to the external world, like you and myself, that, hey, I'm going to stop or give you away, then I, as a human, need to trust what you're telling me. I need to, I need to put my trust in a machine that has been designed by a company or by engineers that believe that what they're programming into this car is correct, right? But at the same time, I would hope that, and I really, really hope that people have common sense to at least evaluate the situation and understand that if the car does not behave as intended to, even though I'm seeing this conflicting message, then I need to do something about it at that same time. And it's really that sort of give and take um, and that sort of trust mechanism between man and machine. So with that, you know, I feel like those are that's one particular challenge that you're faced with. But at the same time, I can definitely understand that if there is a somewhat universal language mm-hmm. about how these machines can communicate and there's this sort of standardization, as you mentioned before, with uh, uh, the standards body, then I believe there could be some sort of path forward to making sure that you know self-driving cars are not just efficient, but they're also safe as well. So with that, has there been any interest in the studies that you've conducted with your peers by large manufacturers like Ford? Have they shown um, any interest in what you guys have done to really get that feedback from you guys and maybe start to prototype, start to implement some of those features in their next iteration of uh, self-driving vehicles? Yeah, indeed. So there, we, we work very closely with industry partners as well. However, most of the times, uh, like the the... So, sometimes we do our research with a more theoretical question in mind and sometimes with a more implementation focus. And right now we are, uh, when it comes to EHMIs, the focus has been so, uh, th- this research has, is so much in its nascent stages that we are not quite there uh, ready for implementation yet. So indeed, uh, we, we have done studies with several industry partners and there are, as I also mentioned, that... Um, my, my supervisor, she is in, herself involved in the standard, uh, standardization body, the ISO, and uh, there, there is this constant dissemination of academic information to the industry partners in those kinds of meetings as well. Uh, so w- one, of the, one, one good example would be <laughs> when, we, when we, in the early days, when we started talking about how to facilitate communication. At, at a very basic level, EHMIs need to convey whether a pedestrian should uh, should walk or not walk, and then one of the uh, one of the obvious solutions was why not just have a traffic light on the car? Why not have the red or green or yellow, those kind of um, like variations or adaptations of those very well understood symbols on the car? And we actually ran studies like that. For instance, when we uh, one of the biggest questions was what happens when we all understand what green or red means on a traffic pole because it, it it's stationary. The, the traffic pole doesn't move. So if it says red, it's meant for me. But what, what does red mean when it's on a car? Do, do, does red mean the car is stopping or does it, is it asking me to stop? So when it's behind the car, for instance, in the brake lights, it goes red. It's asking me to stop. But what happens if it's in front of the car? 
So if, if, I'm, if I see an approaching automated car and it shows me a message, and the HMI shows a message, which is a red light. Uh, we wondered this and we ran this study with hundreds of people. And while most of the times we do tend to have this, uh, this association of the ego self, like we, it's, it's egocentric uh, interpretation of message. So we see a red light, we think it's meant for me, as in the car is telling me not to cross. We see a green light, the car is telling me to cross. While this is the majority uh, perception, we did find a significant minority, but still a significant amount of people who simply say green means uh, the car uh, car is going, so I shouldn't go. And the red means that the car is stopping, so I should go. Uh, so this can cause a really big and fatal misunderstanding. So we also found that this is not going to be red and green. The common arguments of using traffic light colors on the car is not a good idea. So that's also why we, uh, the industry as a whole, is moving towards using more neutral colors uh, for this kind of communication. And the color that is becoming the color of choice is more like a cyan or a turquoise or a, or a bluish green kind of a color. And uh, there are several other uh, reasons why many other colors might not be used. So several standardization bodies like SAE or uh, UNESCO, they, they all already mandate several colors that cannot be used. For instance, orange and amber uh, colored lights are used in construction vehicles. Blue lights are used in emergency vehicles. All of these, there are several other colors which we cannot use. So then it was a matter of finding not only a color that was unused, that was sort of neutral, that could be attributed to a new la communication language, if you will, but also serves the purpose of, of this kind of communication. And that's where we kind of ended up with Cyan. And then this is this was uh, uh, like this, this insight was kind of found by several research groups. We in our research group, we did a similar study, but that it was corroborated by other groups as well. And then it got kind of disseminated to the industry. And that's what all the, the new patents and the new uh, trends are going in a direction. So all the new EHMIs that, for instance, Mercedes Daimler is testing on their cars are all in that color. Uh, uh, another example is, for instance, the use of symbols. So uh, a very natural question is, why don't we use commonly understood symbols like a walking pedestrian or like the hand sign? We understand that as a stop or the walking pedestrian as we, we see that on traffic lights as well. Like they are comparatively more unambiguous compared to just traffic lights. Why can't we use them on the car? But then comes the question of liability. So if the car says somebody else or pedestrians or other road users what to do, if the car's message is an instruction, then it's also assumed that the car should be able to take liability as a, of what happens as a result of that instruction. So if the if a person, if a pedestrian starts walking because the car told it, him or her to, and then there was somebody else who didn't see the person and came from behind and hit them. So who is culpable at that point? So this, all these kinds of ethics and liability and legal issues get intertwined quite quickly once we start uh, going in that direction. And so most of the times the community has started to prescribe that a car should never tell other people what to do it can it can say what it is going to do 
I intend to stop, I intend to slow down, the uh, pedestrian can uh, do what they want with that information, but uh, it, it should never issue an advice or an instruction. And since symbols like walking pedestrian or the, that hand sign, they are instructional, they, they do carry uh, an advisory message. That's why uh, they are not good candidates uh, for use there. And, and Got it. Yeah. Yeah, it, in my, I know you mentioned the traffic light symbol as well, and I can imagine people will get confused, yeah. especially when they're the, they're behind the wheel um, you know, on Monday to Tuesday, and then Wednesday, Thursday, they're the pedestrian, <laughs> and they're getting mixed signals from the car. And it's like, hang on a second, they, they have to do a, a small computation in their head to figure out what should, what should I be doing? And I think you mentioned that there's a lot of ambiguity there yeah. and try to sort of distinguish between uh, the colors and trying to figure out a new color to really showcase uh, what the intentions of the car uh, is planning to do. But you also mentioned about the, that really, and it's, it's, a, it's an important note to make about that the car will not tell the pedestrian what to do. And that's a very, it's an ethical point as well, because when you start to think about no one behind the wheel, and you start to think about who is at fault, and then all the, all of these legal ramifications, mm-hmm. has that sort of um, space of ethics uh, really come into play in your sort of your research, or do you think you treat that as a separate field? Yeah, it, it, another very good question. We consider this very important for our research, but we don't let it uh, affect our studies in, for the for the short term because we still want to. Uh, investigate the theory behind beha- human behavior. So we want to see what are the effects of, let's say, an instructional message. And we will, for the sake of understanding uh, interactions and behavior, we will use instructional message and pit them against advisory or intentional messages and see how they perform. And uh, so uh, indeed, some of the ethical implications can be derived from the insights of our studies. And that's also why that's always overarching. It's always looming in our in our thought process, but it's not necessarily uh, inhibiting the experiments we do ourselves to get there in anyway. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk about the um, the interactions and sort of this is just sort of going um, forward with the conversation about EHMIs, but mm-hmm. really about congestion because there have been reports about um, people mentioning that with self-driving cars, congestion can actually get worse um, and uh, traffic would be even 10 times as worse as it is today. So what are your thoughts about that? Because I can imagine if you're on an intersection or if you are in a very dense urban environment, you need to make sure that in order to promote efficiency, you need to make sure people follow the rules. You need to make sure that these cars follow the rules as well. And so what are your thoughts about congestion in general? Do you think that if hypothetically there was a city that was completely autonomous, what are the what are your expectations about the way that congestion uh, is going to be relieved or created from that environment? Uh, <laughs> this is a multifaceted question, Barry, and I like this question very much because a, a lot rests on it. I, I think the key word here is the city is completely uh, autonomous. So if uh, I 
I am of the opinion that if if uh, if we are able to handle the infrastructure in a way that every single element or entity of the traffic is automated, it can communicate with each other, with each other as well as the infrastructure, we can alleviate con uh, congestion. However, the problem is in the uh, in the early phases of when we have to share road space with partly automated and partly non-automated traffic, and. <laughs> As hard as it is a pill to, to swallow, we humans are the biggest bottlenecks. <laughs> so we, we can be unpredictable, we can be chaotic, we, are, we can be a bit slow to uh, understand uh, dynamics, uh, rapidly changing situations. And of course, we are very good at adapting once we, once we know what it is, we can, we can incorporate that in our daily language. But uh, in the beginning, of course, when we, we are talking about mixed traffic, we are the biggest uh, disruptors of, of efficiency in that case. So uh, as long as we, have, we, we go through that flux of the change between an, an acceptance of more and more autonomous vehicles in our non-automated -auto counterparts and uh, driving entities, we will probably see congestion Arising from elements such as this mistrust, this hesitation, there will be a little bit of a, a delay in processing information. Like, okay, I see, as a driver, I see there is this automated car going. Uh, I might want to be a little bit more careful. I might want to keep a little bit more of a distance just to be on the safe side. Mm. These will all be contributing factors. But as we get more and more used to understanding automated cars, I believe that these things will start to change as well. And that's why we are deeply in need for longitudinal studies to see how the behavior evolves over time. But uh, yeah, but at this point, one can only speculate. And I think <laughs> uh, in the long term, if it's an all automated uh, environment, uh, I think congestion is one of the things that will be most helped by automation. Yeah. I, uh, I I agree with that statement. And as you mentioned, there's going to be a transitory period yeah. where there'll be a shift. And it'll be, it won't be an easy shift. I think the people will have to come to grips with the idea of self-driving. And they will have to sort of reprogram their brain to really th um, not... And, and this comes back to your, uh, your anecdote about people looking at the grill and s sort of watching their eye sort of move up the bonnet and then uh, to, the, to, the, to the driver. So I feel like there's a lot of reprogramming involved on the, on the human psyche mm -hmm. where, when it comes to this evolution of self-driving. When you, when you conduct your studies, how do you actually proceed and how do you, from a logistics standpoint, do you just bring in samples and people who are interested in participating? Um, how do you procure um, your so-called um, sort of like your self-driving cars, semi-self-driving cars with people in them. You know, is this something that you're doing on a daily basis? And what is the sample size that you're you're targeting right now? Yeah. So uh, most of the times we do the universe, uh, we do the experiments in our university campus. So oftentimes we end up uh, using the university participant database as our uh, as our participant as our uh, target demographic. So it, it comprises of university students and staff, uh, staff essentially. So uh, we we do tend to get all kinds of different ages from 19, 18, 19 years old, well, until about 60 years old. 
and most of the times we tend to run studies that uh, when when we are particularly dealing uh, dealing with uh, um, physical experiments with participants, we we uh, deal with anywhere between thirty to sixty participants. But this is also a really um, a challenge because most of the times when uh, like the university demographic, no matter how diverse we wanted to be or even we managed to get the diverse set of participants, it will never be representative of the public in general. Uh, and we oftentimes we also don't get to test with edge um, edge cases of the demographic, like let's say children or the elderly or people with uh, accessibility uh, needs and all these kinds of uh, special cases need special, special attention, which we don't quite handle on a regular basis, but we also recognize the, the need for it very much. And there are several of my colleagues who are focusing on those kinds of uh, areas of research. Uh, but then again, um, when we do uh, studies which are not with physical participants, for instance, things that can be done remotely or over surveys, then we then it's easier to deal with a, a higher number of participants and then we deal with in the order of 200, 500, or even 1,000 participants. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's about, yeah, it, it kind of depends on what kind of study we run. And then, yeah, we divide the load accordingly. Are you doing any uh, cross-collaboration with other academic institutions Absolutely, around the world? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, we have collaborations with uh, several universities in, the, uh, in Germany, in Sweden, and the UK. And I am also in touch with several colleagues from the US as well. Um, so uh, Stanford University is doing some really cool work in this area. So is Cornell. Uh, so even though uh, we, we always make sure to uh, be on the same page and, it, and also kind of not only is it important to not, um, so it's kind of wasteful. It's, it's a waste of resources if we just do the same experiment over and over again. So we really, it's important that we kind of be on the same page with each other. And so we can support and corroborate each other instead of doing uh, uh, replication of the same studies. But also it's kind of, we also realized it was important to maybe do the same studies in different uh, geographical locations to account for the cultural and the, the psychological differences in how people interact with traffic in these, in these different geographical areas. So no matter how, similar traffic in Western Europe and North America are, there are still minor differences. And for instance, in the Netherlands, jaywalking is not disallowed. Uh, in, in the US and UK, it is. Um, in Canada too, I believe. But here in the Netherlands, you are, we are not allowed to walk uh, across the road with 10 meters from a zebra crossing, but we are allowed to exercise our judgment and make sure that it's safe and it will not cause a an unsafe situation and we can cross the road in the middle of the road but uh these are the small things that uh that can change imperceptibly even the the way people interact in traffic and it's important to account for these minor differences to see if they can actually have some major impact down the line what's uh what is your intention for the research that you're doing right now i mean what are you hoping to accomplish, achieve in the next two to three years with the, with the stuff that you're working on right now? <laughs> Good question. This topic has so many unanswered questions 
that I, I don't think that we will be arriving at a solution anytime soon. But at the same time, I think my hope is to continue to like poke at <laughs> these frayed edges and see where we can get with that. So we are we are also trying to explore various ways of uh, perhaps seeing hacking this communication that we talked about. Like so far, we have talked about EHMI communicating through lights or through sound. But uh, one thing that we are exploring right now is how perhaps can we use biomimicry to communicate? And what is that? Biomimicry, uh, by biomimicry, I mean uh, uh, somehow incorporating in, uh, inspiration from the animal world around us to see how animals or pla- plants or insects or birds will communicate and see if we can somehow mm, infuse some of those elements in in our car in in some kind of a mm. sentient being <laughs> so uh one of the things we were trying to see for instance was that when when a cat gets angry or when a hedgehog tries to ward off a predator it makes itself bigger it just balloons up puffer fish for instance uh so it, it shows signs of aggression or when uh, a bird comes comes into land it deploys its feathers and with all these kinds of different movements, we already see um, the intention behind the certain gesture. And we, were, we, we are trying to explore here whether such kind of movement-based or kinematic-based gestures can somehow be extended to car communication. So if we, <laughs> maybe this is a ridiculous idea, we will find out, but uh, we, are, we are still, uh, exploring the idea of treating the car as maybe a sentient being because we already know several people have treat the car as a as a being as a, as a pet or as, a, as an extension of their personality they ascribe personality to their car so it's not a far cry to uh, uh like yeah well of course some people do simply treat cars as an appliance but for many like the car is an extension and it for it, it won't be such a leap to consider the car as a sentient being which is capable of uh, some kind of a communication. And there have been pr- plenty of studies done as well, not in form of outside communication, but um, but by ascribing some kind of a voice personality to the car. Something like Knight Rider, for instance, like the car could talk and it had a, a personality. And there, there were several experiments which showed what kind of uh, personality had most effect on compliance in in passengers? Uh, so it, it does show that some kind of uh, ascribing sentience to a, a vehicle is not a new thing. It can work. It, it can actually have a, a surprisingly strong effect. And we are trying to uh, use those kind of peripheral insights with this new topic of biomimicry-based communication to see if it has any promise, for instance. So yeah, uh, check back in a year. <laughs> well, I think that's a that's a good uh, segue to really maybe do a round two next time. And you mentioned at the beginning we can always go off at little tangents, and uh, you know, you it seems like this is a rabbit hole uh, in and of itself. And there's a lot of philosophical, ethical, um, technical questions to answer here. And this is precisely why I wanted to speak with you. And and I know that we're sort of hitting hitting the hour here. Uh, but if for people to contact you or get in touch with you, um, how 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 should they go about it? Oh, uh, absolutely. People can get in touch with me. I, I 
I have a Twitter account in which I tend to post some of my uh, work-related stuff. Uh, it, my Twitter handle is daydeb, D-E-Y-D-E-B. And I'm also available on LinkedIn. Um, and I believe, Barry, you and I are already connected on LinkedIn. Uh, yeah, so definitely I, I am very excited about this topic and I'm passionate to, to engage in this discussion. So if anyone wants to reach out and share their thoughts, please, absolutely, well, you're welcome to. I'm sure there'll be a lot of uh, people, especially because this is a, such a hot topic right now, um, you know, the, this area of interfacing between us and the car is becoming more and more important. And I know that it's very nascent, as you mentioned before, but eventually um, these questions will have to be answered, especially if we want to arrive at a, uh, you know, a society where we can definitively say that you know we are in the next evolution of of driving of self-driving cars. So, and I think your research and the work you're doing is paramount to making sure that that happens for not just in Europe, but I think across the world. And I think um, it sounds like there's a lot of things that need to be done, a lot of research and collaboration. Uh, but I have no doubt that uh, you and and your colleagues will have a, a lot to share in the next year or so. I hope so. I hope not to disappoint. <laughs> thanks very much for the uh, the quick. Uh, thanks very much for the chat. Uh, I really hope uh, everything goes well. And as I said before, we'll definitely do uh, a round two sometime in the near future and see what you're up to. So thank you very much, Dave, and uh, I really appreciate you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Barry. My pleasure. Talk to you soon. All right. <laughs>